Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. You are listening to Concord Matters on Worldwide KFUO. I am your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, seeking with you and our brothers in the faith to be united in one mind under the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, to be conformed into his image, confessing who he is, what he has done, according to the confessions of the Lutheran faith, because, well, we believe that's what the Bible says. I have in studio with me today uh, Pastor Sean Smith of St. Paul Winehill and, and Emmanuel Lutheran Church in West Point, Illinois, and Mr. Peter Slade of the social media manager of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. We're going to be continuing to walk through this apology, this defense of the Augsburg Confession, as we've been doing for several weeks and will likely be doing for a while now, focusing in on Article 4, justification, what it means to be declared good, to be made righteous, to be told you're something different than you are by the very Word of God. We're going to be picking up at paragraph 75, starting a new section today uh, on the obtaining of forgiveness of sins through faith alone in Christ, and maybe uh, moving a little further even than that. But first, welcome, gentlemen. Welcome to the show. So great to be here as always. Oh, as always, I should turn your mics on because, uh, say it again. (laughs) So great to be here as always, now that you're allowing me to speak to the world. (laughs) Just made it under the wire here. Just got to put a muzzle on sometimes, especially Sean. I just never know, never know. Yeah, yeah. I like to I like to preach. All right. <laughs> um, so we're we're moving away from now. I believe uh, they were dwelling on the relationship of love and works and the abuse that Rome was effectively teaching, which is that that love and works are what make faith valuable. And we're moving instead into what really creates faith, sustains faith, makes faith valuable is what gets put into that that you believe in, namely the forgiveness of sins. So we're just going to dive in here. Paragraph 75, I'll probably read 76 and a little bit further as well, because it's a bit short, that first paragraph. Melanchthon writes, oh, I got, we'll say one more thing because we got um, Sydney back there. If you got a question or comment about the text today, call. Please join us. Love to have a live call and see what you think about the text. 1-800-730-2727. I'll say that again. 1-800-730-2727. Pastor Smith promises to smile at the first caller. (laughs) 1-800-730-2727. Question or comment about paragraph 75 and following of Article 4 of the Apology to the Augsburg Confession. That's a mouthful, but it's good stuff. Here we go. We think even the adversaries acknowledge that the forgiveness of sins is necessary in justification. We are all under sin. Therefore, we reason as follows. And just to kind of affirm there, what they're going to try to prove now is that even the Roman Catholic theologians of the day, and today as well, basically have to admit that we have to be forgiven for sin. <laughs> There's no way out from sin other than forgiveness. Here is our reasoning. 76. To receive the forgiveness of sins is to be justified, according to Psalm 32.1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. By faith alone in Christ, not through love, not because of love or works, we receive the forgiveness of sins. 
Although love follows faith, therefore, by faith alone, we are justified. We understand justification as the making of a righteous person out of an unrighteous one, or that a person is regenerated. So, going uh, floating around Psalm 32 there, right? Blessed are the one whose transgression is forgiven. The idea is that forgiveness must come first, and everything else flows from that. And for that reason, you can't be being forgiven because you've done something. It's something God is declaring to you. Right. And want to point out too that it, it wasn't that Rome was denying that forgiveness of sins was necessary. It's just that they were commingling it. It's it's the old Reformation thing. They were commingling other things in there as part of receiving that forgiveness, the sale of indulgences and so forth. Um, and so they, they were saying, no, no, it's faith alone. And oh, by the way, this forgiveness of sins is justification. They're, they're, they're one in the same. So when we say you are justified, that means your sins have been forgiven. And that's only received by faith alone in Jesus. Anything else that flows forth from that, all right, are the good works. And they can't help but be there. We, we often like to, to say in our Lutheran circles, you know, it is faith alone that saves, but faith is never alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've used on uh, previous shows as we talked about justification, it, it works rather like a fire. It has fuel that it consumes and it can't help but produce heat and light. That's what a fire does. And that's what they're explaining here as well is that uh, faith alone receives this gift of the objective fact that Christ died on a cross and said, it's finished. You're now justified. You are in a right relationship with God, our Heavenly Father, because your sins are forgiven. And that can't help feeding on that fuel. That can't help but produce the good works. And so faith never comes alone. Uh, It will produce good works. It will produce fruits. Seems like there's two things there then going on. One is that uh, Rome is, is teaching faith not alone, faith plus works. But the other one being trying to draw a line between justification and forgiveness and create this whole other category for justification that isn't connected to forgiveness of sins. Right. And unless we think that it's just a Roman problem, uh, it, it's very, very much present in American evangelicalism still today. Yeah. I don't think Peter's mic is on. You no, want to turn it's him on? on? Hear myself. Yeah. Gonna... Lift it up. But anyway, uh, then, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's American evangelical problem. It's a human problem. We, we think we need to add something to it. But, but especially the Methodists have been hugely influential on this in the United States, that they really do have a part that there's a method to receiving this. And, I mean, that's, that's behind their teachings. They make no mistake. It is faith plus good works that are necessary. Well, it's like it's like God saying, I forgive you of your sins isn't enough. Now right. I have to go out and, and prove the validity of it. You know, it's not, it's not that we shouldn't strive for good works. It's not that God won't actually work this out in us, but we don't rely on those things at all. Well, I don't even know if it's as much that we don't want God to just forgive us our sins. It's we want to, we're back to, we want to be a part of it. Mm. I can't handle this idea of God just doing everything, I want to insert myself into there somewhere, whether I'm starting it, whether I'm finishing it, I'm contributing to it somewhere. And I think that's that mingling you were, you were talking about there, Sean, at the beginning where it's constantly at syncretism is a word that came to mind. Like this has constantly been a problem, especially you travel overseas and you see the Roman Catholic churches uh, in Latin American countries and African countries. Those are the ones I've had direct experience with. And in the same way that they easily mingle, 
you know, justification and works, you so easily mingle the Roman Catholic religion and the local religion. I'm wondering if the reason it's easy to mingle them is because the local religions are generally extremely works-oriented. It just kind of fits right that's in. That's a random thought I just popped into my head there. Well, because you <laughs> use the word syncretism, which is to take two religions and kind of blend them together, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's it's sounds a lot like another word, synergism, which is to blend works with grace, oh, yeah. right? And you find that syncretistic religions are always trying to go that direction. On another show that airs on Mondays called Cross Defense, we've been working through Dr. Pieper, uh, Volume 1, and that's the point he's been making, is that all the religions of the world are united on one thing, which is teaching works salvation, yeah. with the exception yeah. of Christianity. Yeah, every religion in the world says you must do, right? You have to give all glory to the deity or you have to achieve a certain state of mind and so forth. Only Christianity says, no, it's it's done for you. It's done in Christ Jesus. And that will light that will undoubtedly produce fruits, but it's not necessary. I, I want to share a CFW Walther quote because I'm, I'm a Walther guy. We're you going know old that. school. Yeah. But uh, a, a great CFW Walther quote on this, the gospel does not require anything good that a man must furnish, not a good heart, not a good disposition, no improvement of his condition, no godliness, no love either of God or men. Rather, it plants love into his heart and makes him capable of all good works. It demands nothing but gives all. I, I mean, when, when I started digging into Walther years ago about uh, college or so and, and started reading these sorts of things, and then I was seeing it in Luther and seeing it in the church fathers and so forth, I was like, well, I, I actually now am beginning to understand gospel for myself. Mm. Um, mm. I, I had kind of grown up under this American evangelical understanding that you know I had to furnish something. I had to clean up my act in order to be worthy of the gospel. And it's so pervasive. And it's interesting earlier, you said it's a human problem. Um, you know, one of the, the per- pervasive worldly philosophies out there is humanism, that there's some good, a bit, some bit of good in me that I have something to offer. And I just have mental good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Kind of a fundamental good. And we just kind of stir that up within people to, to produce these things. And, and when that gets commingled with our Christian understanding, we actually lose the gospel and the true Mm -hmm. comfort as he'll get to here in the, in the next few paragraphs of you, the the real gospel actually provides a whole lot of conscience for you or, or uh, comfort for your conscience because it makes you realize I don't have anything good to offer. Nothing I do is ever good enough. But and that's actually Jesus good. That saved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. The irony is that's actually a good thing. Right. Yeah. yeah exactly. During the conversation about the apology to the Augsburg Confession, Article 4, 1-800-730-2727. We'd love to have you join us. Paragraph 79 says... It will become easy to state the minor premise that we receive forgiveness of sin by faith. That is the thing they're calling the minor premise. It's a part of this legal argument Melanchthon's making. What you really want to get out of here is it's easy to prove the point that forgiveness of sin is by faith, not by love, if we know how forgiveness of sins happens. With great indifference, the adversaries dispute whether forgiveness of sins and infusion of grace are the same change. That is, whether or not forgiveness is also the empowering of you to do love, right? Whether grace is this this substance, this fuel by which you achieve things, or whether it is a, a position God takes toward you. And then you get some of his snark here. Being useless men, they did not know how to answer this question. He kind of he's mocking that they don't even know their own stuff very well. And this was kind of a true thing in the Reformation that the 
the initial arguments, the Lutherans had a real advantage. They just came off as more educated. They were they were more scholarly. The Jesuits end up being founded to, to fight back, basically. Um, <laughs> but so he's he's kind of it's a sucker punch. We'll we'll admit that. Um, but the point is then in the forgiveness of sins, the terrors of sin and of eternal death must be overcome in the heart. Paul testifies about this in 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That verse, again, all trying to show us that the law in sin accuses us, Christ and the gospel sets us free. In other words, sin terrifies consciences. This happens through the law, which shows God's wrath against sin. But we gain the victory through Christ. How? And then here's kind of this minor premise, through faith, when we comfort ourselves by confidence in the mercy promised for Christ's sake. How can what Paul says there, that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but we've been given the victory through Christ, how can that be true if, well, I still have to earn it through love? Yeah, and and if I were Melanchthon writing this, although he's a far smarter man than I, but I I probably would have also cited in there Galatians 2, Uh, Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And then, uh, for the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, I mean, that's just like, I hate to be a proof texter, but it's like, here's, here's your text that says exactly from God's word, which we believe to be true, that the law can do nothing but convince me of my sin. Isn't that effectively why we have this enormously large article defending Article 4, because the proof texts just were not accepted. They were just rejected straight up. So, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, you've got that text, but we have James chapter 2, right? So we can, we can make that all go away. And so you have to go into this massive argument in which you're going to leave no stone unturned in your debate so that they can't, well, ignore that text and, and all the others. I got a question here uh, about this, uh, particularly the phrase... Where he says the terrors of sin and of eternal death must be overcome in the heart. A, a constant theme throughout the uh, the Augsburg Confession, and then of course here in the Apology, is this comforting, terrified consciousness, comforting consciences. So as Melanchthon here, as and Scripture, I would argue as well, obviously making the point that unless the conscience is comforted, there there's no gospel, there's no justification. That because the Roman, the papists in this in this setting are leaving people unsure. I mean, assurance of faith back mm. then was actually heresy. You know, you can't be assured of your faith because, you know, then you might be comforted in your sin kind of thing. They're, you know, falling off the horse on that side. But is he basically making the argument here that, you know, there needs to be comfort for the terrified conscience in order for it, for the gospel to be there or for it to be properly teaching justification? Is that, is that what he's saying? Any ideas? Um, I, I'm I'm not entirely sure. I'm wrapping my head around what you just. <laughs> I used might be wrapping lot, my head around. You used it too. a lot of words, but I'm going to take an attempt <laughs> to, to answer your question. I mean, to to put it this way, uh, we we've all seen um, what it is to to work under certain bosses that nothing you can do is ever pleasing to them Mm -hmm. or for children to live under parents where everything they do is wrong. They're such a disgrace to them. And I mean, all that does is just beat you down into this just like helpless state. And, and you're just, uh, words are escaping me right now, but (laughs) I mean, it's just a miserable existence that, that, um, 
you're you're never at peace and you're constantly looking to get out of there. Yeah. And that's where we see children run away from such homes uh, just to get out from that situation. That's where you see I take a lower paying job or something, you know, just or, or even go unemployed yeah. just to, just for better conditions in that sense. And so, yeah, this this terrified conscience just leads me to want to run away. Right? And that is the situation that the church found itself in where Luther was arguing against, no, this isn't what the church is supposed to be doing. I mean, that's not what we're here for, to constantly beat people down and keep them living in eternal fear. Right. Luther said that he hated God because of what he was taught. Yeah. He, yeah. he wanted to get away from God. Yeah. Because yeah. God wouldn't forgive him, no matter yeah. how hard he tried. Yeah. Right? And, and the irony is, is that's already the situation in sin. Yeah. We, we yeah. already <laughs> are not at peace with God, and, and we're kind of running away when we do we sin. Kind of already know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so what, what we have to do is, is turn them to that objective work of Christ upon the cross and declare. You know, it, it's, it's, it's ironic to me how many churches out there, um, you know, when, when they see the numbers dropping off in attendance in church or they see people not very active in programs and there's a whole lot of other things attached in there and so forth. But it's, it's, it's amazing how many pastors in church, those churches or just churches broadly as a congregation turn to all these works oriented kind of things to stir up the people to do more. But all it does is lead them to run away more because it's like, I can't even do enough. I, I mean, I just, I hate God. I want nothing to do with him. And we just get angry at him. And, and we know that feeling. And and the, it's it's so much easier. All you have to do is just say, hey, it's done for you. Yeah. And and when my conscience is at comfort, I mean, I want to please my my parents when, when you know, they've provided a loving home for me with a roof over my head. I have food on my table to eat all the time. They, they, you know, all of all of these things are done for me. Well, of course, I want to help my dad mow the lawn or, you know, things like that. Of course, I'm going to go over and above for my job in a place where I know I'm truly appreciated, even more so when we know that it is perfectly done through Christ and we are at peace. We are at union, which we were created for and sin broke. And that's why we needed to be justified, brought into that right relationship again. I think that gets to the heart of what Peter's question was. And and Peter, if I'm not getting your question right, um, I'd love to hear it again, just so so we do. I'm but, still working through yeah, it in my head, too. Well, but faith needs something to feed on. And so you reach a point at which if you don't have the gospel, if you cease to give the justifying words that declare you forgiven, faith, if it's there begins to starve, begins yeah. to atrophy, it begins to get weak. And, and you end up at a point where you're running to and fro looking for something to grasp, hold, and hold on to. And so, you know, as Lutherans, we, we never denied that the church existed in Rome. There, there are Christians there in Rome, but we, we confess that it was captive as the exiles in Babylon were captive because the gospel had been buried under so much other stuff that people were effectively starving for it. We're not going to be the ones to judge who and when was in or out of the faith, but we do know that when you remove that gospel, it kills faith. Mm -hmm. And it's just a matter of time until it kills the church that is the gathering around that faith entirely. Yeah. And, and, and to paraphrase another Walther quote, and I am just paraphrasing here, you know, he, he talks about pastors who, who kind of lack that courage to preach the gospel. And, and it's because we look out there and even when we're preaching that gospel fully and clearly, um, there are still those and, and our 
own pastors as well, right? Who still sin or who still take it for granted and things like that. But that's not the fault of the gospel, Walther says. And I think he grabs it so well. I mean, this this law gospel distinction is just... Walther excelled at it. That's why I'm referencing him all the time. It, it and always, it's so connected to this. It always strikes me that when you, you mentioned, you know, the, the emptying pews, which is nothing new. The churches have had rising and declining in various areas and in various places uh, for, for the history of the church. But it seems like the the gut reaction of our human nature when we see an emptying pew is to think, an emptying congregation, is to think something along the lines of, well, we must be too uh, strictly adhering to doctrine. Uh, we must be preaching Christ too too scandalously it's too narrow we got to pull back a little bit we got to ease up that'll bring everybody in and rather than asking well the pews are empty maybe maybe we haven't preached Christ enough maybe we haven't held the doctrine enough maybe we need to repent maybe the answer isn't to go go fix but to implore more mercy but th- that's not our that's not our native position Right, and so we go. We we go off, and we remove the very thing that's most needed to rejuvenate the church. Mm. Right, and and I'll I'll admit, early in my ministry too, I I recognized in my own preaching that I was giving a lot of information about God. I was giving a lot of information about Christ. I I was preaching Christ, so I thought the, right? tw- the Trinity <laughs> I, and twenty seven bullet points. Yeah. <laughs> but I wasn't actually preaching Christ. As we Lutherans rightly understand in this huge article in, in, in the Book of Concord, that we are doing Christ. You have peace and union with God. And that's that's what we're, we're sometimes lacking. I, I've recognized in my own preaching at times is I'm sometimes lacking that, that there's this huge separation between us and God. And nothing can bring that back together again, except for Christ and who he is and what he has done and what he has accomplished. And so when we recognize that that's the place of gospel, oh, it's like so comforting. And it's like the burden's off me. And now I can really get to work, not because I have to, but because it's so pleasing to do. Yeah. It's the difference between a sermon that's a Bible study where, like you said, passing along information and a sermon whose purpose is to forgive the sins of the people listening. Absolutely. And that's a massive difference. When you listen to pastors on, on either side of that, there there's a significant difference in what they preach, how they preach, the tone in which they preach it. Um, sometimes it's as simple as, wow, that pastor really cares about me yeah. <laughs> versus uh, he's just up there, you know, passing along some information here. I'm going to go home and forget it all. Well, yeah. I mean, if, if your Bible study is at that level, it's it's not much of a Bible study either, right? <laughs> right. I mean, well, it, it's at least more appropriate in a Bible study, right. you know, passing on information. But even there, you got to be I'm convinced the Bible study is there to, to create and sustain faith, right? And so ultimately, sure. it's got to be more than just information. It has yeah. to be. And this is where I see, at least, preaching is, I mean, sure, we got the narrow thing of the pulpit, but the pastor effectively should preach every time he opens his mouth. When he's in the, he's sitting at, at Grandma Schmidt's house having some tea and cupcakes, he needs to preach, right? He's not there just to talk about the weather. And he doesn't preach by pulling out a sermon and going through 27 bullet points on the Trinity, <laughs> right? If he can fit it yeah. 27. <laughs> um, but is to draw in to the life and the conversation they have, law and gospel, the truth about who we are, the truth about who Christ is, who he is for us. And recovering that, as the center linchpin of what the church gathers around, I think is key, whether it's in Bible study, whether it's when the pastor speaks in the voters' assembly, for Pete's sake. You know, shouldn't he be ultimately bringing to bear what the scriptures have to say to us where we 
where we are. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I I'm with you. I I'm I'm probably a little more with Peter on the Bible study distinction as well, and I'm I'm totally <laughs> on your side. That yes, it can be a both we, and. It doesn't it, have to it be. It does have or. to be yeah. a both and. Um, but but I think that we have lost this distinction. In American Christianity, broadly speaking, of which we Lutherans fall under that kind of understanding, is that we've taken so many of our sermons, and again, I recognized this in my own ministry early on, that we turn it into kind of this Bible study thing, and and then by by default, we lose Bible study attendance. People aren't coming to Bible study where it's like, no, I'm still going to preach faith into your heart, right, mm-hmm. as, as, as we go through God's Word, because it is there to create and sustain faith as well. Um, but I'm going to go into a lot more detail and a whole lot of those other things that are kind of the scaffolding sure. around that, that helps support that. Um, but in my sermon, especially in the LCMS where they're tapping on their watches at 10 minutes, We're you know, at it's like, if I'm, if I'm giving you information, I mean, I don't even have enough time to forgive your sins. <laughs> right. Um, and, and so, yeah. It brings but, me back to something that you made me think of earlier, too, when you're talking about good preaching, and that is, and, and, and that there's nothing that can, um, f- feeling that there's nothing to bridge the gap between us and God. And to me, the, the best preaching then doesn't just say Jesus did it. It also then says now Jesus is going to do it right here. And it moves me from the pew to the altar hmm. where Jesus breaches the gap between me and God. Like, in the most literal, physical manner possible. You've By heard words, it, now taste faith. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He actually drags you up into the throne room and puts you before God. And and it's like, wait, I don't belong here. But that's <laughs> well, the frame and, of mind that we need to be in. To think that somehow sin could still exist in me in some sort of substantial, permanent way when the holiest of holies has entered me and made me his temple. What I see is less real than what he says is true, right? And what they're effectively saying here, though, is that that's not the case, that the holy God is inside of you, but you still got to, well, you got to get up to him somehow. It's just, it's such a backwards undoing of of truth. In in seminary, they taught us the domestication of transcendence, right? We're constantly trying to climb Climb up to God, you know. Uh, so there, there's your five dollar words for yeah, the, right, right. For the day. Couple of them. Yeah. of transcendence. You, you now have like one sixteenth of <laughs> a said, seminary he said, education. I see your question, and I raise you a comment. <laughs> 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 uh, we're, you're listening to Cross Defense on Worldwide K. If you no, they're not. Place. No, we're not. It's Concord Matters. You're listening to Concord Matters. <laughs> I recorded Cross Defense an hour ago. I apologize. <laughs> on Worldwide KFU. You're on Worldwide KFU, right? Yes. yes. I don't work for any yeah. other radio station. No, yeah. not that I'm aware of. We'll be back in just a minute. This is definitely a place where I need to take a break. Stick around. Concordia University, Wisconsin, and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs, and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System, and Corporate Synod, daily reaches out to our members and partners, working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, 
and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org slash jobs board. Tuesday on Issues Etc., we'll discuss love, sex, and fulfillment with Dr. Gifford Grobean. We'll have Pastor Tom Baker lead us in a Sunday school lesson on Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we'll continue our series on Lutheran identity, talking with Dr. Al Schmidt about word and sacrament, the means of grace. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. A family in Oregon lost their business, refined $135,000, and hit with a gag order by an administrative agency, all for refusing to create a special wedding cake for a lesbian couple. But after nearly four years, Aaron and Melissa Klein finally got their day in court. I speak with attorney Jeremy Dice about Sweet Cakes by Melissa. World Lutheran News Digest, Wednesday, 2.30 and Saturday at 9.30. Abigail and John Adams easily qualify as America's first power couple. Abigail Adams was influenced by her father, a congregational minister, but also by her grandfather, a speaker of the Massachusetts Assembly, and became the wife of our second president and the mother of our sixth. There were years of separation for the young couple, resulting in over a thousand letters, Abigail often citing biblical references. On July 14, 1775, in a letter to John referring to the newly written Declaration of Independence, she quoted from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. May the foundations of our new constitution be justice, truth, and righteousness. Like the wise man's house, may it be founded on these rocks, and then neither storms or tempest will overthrow it. The Bible, its influence throughout history. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Cross defense is Concord Matters here on Worldwide Care for You, where we look at the Augsburg Confession, the Book of Concord, seeking to be of one mind in what our Lord Jesus Christ has said, believing that these words have been given to speak back to him and to each other, and ultimately, as we're kind of uh, dwelling on today, for the sake of our comfort. This isn't about being dogmatic for dogmatic's sake, right? It's right. about being dogmatic because the comfort is something we don't want to lose. I want more Jesus, and I'll be dogmatic about that. Yeah, and that's that's what's going yeah. on here. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and at some point we all we all ask ourselves, what's it all about? What's what's life all about, right? And uh, there's there's a lot of different answers out there. Um, I'm, I'm quoting uh, uh, Berthold von Schenk here when he says, you know, the capitalist says it's all about getting more money and the labor. Well, now we're into five dollar names. <laughs> Hang on, stick with me here. <laughs> but uh, he has this great book called The Presence. Uh, Will Wheaton's who, who's on here at eleven o'clock uh, with Thy Strong Word. Uh, he he and I both love this this book very much. But anyway, coming back to the quote. So he got names was, and a book. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Buy it. Except Except it's out of print, so make them print oh, it again. Yeah, right. All right, no, um, you can get it on Kindle though. Now I'm a salesman. <laughs> all right, but see this. Uh, back to the quote. So um, a capitalist says, you know, it's all about getting more money, and um, you know, a laborist is all about better working conditions, and you know, you have all these different philosophies and what it's all about. But who out there, right, is saying it's all about union with God? Hmm. Because that really is what it's all about. Because we had it in the garden. And sin messed it all up. And so now we have this God problem, 
all right? One, that we mm-hmm. want to be gods unto ourselves, which is why we're constantly trying to offer our own good works in here. But then also that we're not at peace with God of our own, right? Nothing can be done about it. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter how much you try and love people. You're never going to meet that perfection demand that Jesus himself says is in, in Matthew. He says, you know, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, that's what's demanded under the law. And only in Christ do you find that union with God again. And that will have everlasting implications on the last day when Christ comes again and everything comes to an end. I mean, if you're not at peace with God through Christ and faith, you have an, I mean, if you think that we live in a broken world that's full of hurt and pain now, try that for all eternity. I mean, that's just miserable. Right. You're at war with God now, and you're going to see it for reals on the last day, <laughs> yeah. right? Even though yeah. it is it is kind of breaking in now. And I, so it's, that book, The Presence, that's talking about the supper being the yeah. actual presence, the place where yeah. God himself is justifying us. And that's, that's why so much of this matters here is so that you would know when you go to take that meal, when you eat that bread and wine— it's not just an idea about grace. It's not just uh, you having to praise God in a special way. It is God delivering to you the full and sufficient justification which Christ purchased on the cross for the sake of you believing it. It's not that chewing it up earns you anything either, right? It's that it's for the sake of believing it. You walk away, you know you're forgiven. Yeah. Yeah. Just full trust and comfort. I'm always um, big into when I'm reading the confessions talking about how does this apply to me today? You know, we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church 500 years ago. Okay, what does this mean for me actually today? And Sean, when you brought up um, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, I remember a time, uh, freshman year of college, uh, back when your internet discussions were just starting on like forums. Mm -hmm. And so my graduating class, we had our own forum. One of the guys uh, was like a computer science major and he actually coded his own. So we had like our own private corner of the internet kind of thing. But we would get into these discussions and I wasn't Lutheran. Um, at the time I could, I don't even know if I knew any Lutherans or anything like that. So standard American evangelical all the way. And I still got into theological discussions. I enjoyed that. And one of my friends in the midst of one of the discussions basically said, was kind of asserting, you know, nobody's actually a Christian because here scripture says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And that's the measure. Hmm. And, you know, talking here in the apology about, well, in line 80, God's wrath cannot be appeased if we set our own works against it. I mean, that's what he was throwing in my face yeah. or all of us. It, it was at me and a couple others, you know, be perfect. You're not perfect. Here's your works set against God. And as an evangelical, I literally had no response. I didn't know what to say. And I believe thinking back, I'm pretty sure I just ignored that and moved on. Or I just said, you know, it means something else or that's not what it actually means. I had, I had no response because I didn't know what the gospel actually was. I love how the next sentence is the answer. Yeah. Christ has been set forth as an atoning sacrifice. That's my answer. And I didn't have that. Yeah. I didn't respond with that. There was nothing there. And so it's like, okay, we still have this right now talking about parallels in American evangelicalism. And that was me. (laughs) I got nothing. Well, that's what we were talking about earlier about people starving too, right? Oh, yeah. The, the, the ultimately, American Christianity is a wilderness right now, not because nobody means well, not because nobody's trying, maybe because we're trying too hard, 
But we're trying all the wrong things, looking for reconciliation in all the wrong places. I, to <laughs> I was loosely a, quote yeah, Bobby nice. Brown. Nice. <laughs> I was going to say, I was a student at the Christian Harvard, Wheaton College. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there is no other higher Christian institution other than our Concordia, of, of course. Obviously. Yes. Yeah. Um, but at the time, it's like, I'm there and I'm still starving for the gospel. Didn't have it there either. Yeah, let's right. let's go ahead and read that section that you were referencing there, just so we, we do cover some ground today in the actual text. <laughs> so, therefore, we prove the minor premise. So, they've already said that, right? They've already proven that. God's wrath cannot be appeased if we set our own works against it. That's what Peter quoted, what I quoted. For Christ has been set forth as an atoning sacrifice so that, for his sake, the Father may be reconciled to us. That That's the answer. Not me, but Jesus. But Christ is not received as a mediator except by faith. Therefore, by faith alone, and notice that this is the refrain now. They're, they're bringing up that faith alone again and again. By faith alone, we receive forgiveness of sins when we comfort our hearts with confidence in the mercy promised for Christ's sake. And then to prove it from Paul. Likewise, Paul says in Romans 5, 2, through him, that's Christ, Jesus, we have also obtained access and even adds by faith. Therefore, Melanchthon continues, we are reconciled to the Father and receive forgiveness of sins when we are comforted with confidence in the mercy promised for Christ's sake. The adversaries regard Christ as mediator and atoning sacrifice for this reason. He has merited the habit of love. They do not encourage us to use him now as a mediator. They act as though Christ were certainly in the grave. They imagine that we have access to God through our own works. They think they merit this habit through these and afterward, these works, and afterward, by this love, come to God. Is this not, and this was your question, Peter, earlier, mm -hmm. is this not to bury Christ altogether and to take away the entire teaching of faith? Yep. Paul, on the contrary, teaches that we have access to God, that is, reconciliation through Christ. To show how this happens, he adds that we have access by faith. By faith, for Christ's sake, we receive forgiveness of sins. We cannot set up our own love and our own works against God's wrath. Again, as the apology does, the same thing over and over again. He's speaking in a circle because he wants to tie up every single loose thread and make sure you can't well, take it out of context and throw it back at him. Yeah, he's a lawyer writing yeah. his yeah. his position. We've talked about that before, too. And and the, to summarize what he's saying here is we have a God problem, but God is our solution. Yeah. That brings us... Oh, I sounded so American you evangelical. Should that, I, I should <laughs> Write a book. I should be a megachurch pastor now. Like, everyone's going to come was, for my pithy phrase. That was no, sweet. You've yeah. got too much gospel no. for that. <laughs> Sorry. Ooh, ouch. Uh, but... Uh, Wow, I, I stunned myself. No, I, I'll I was going to you, somewhere. You can comment yeah. on it. You right. said we have a God problem, but God is the solution. Right. Hashtag Jonathan Fisk said that. No. <laughs> so go on. You get Run all on. the glory. That's, that's the truth. Yeah. All Run right. Um, yes. And so that reconciled word, this is one of these, oh. you know, I teach at a Lutheran high school, Christ our Savior Lutheran High School in Evansville, Illinois, um, in the mornings. And I'm constantly teaching them the terminology, the language of our church. And, and so I think it's important for us to define that too. What does it mean to be reconciled? Mm. Well, it's as I was talking earlier, it brings us into that union again, that right relationship. Uh, when you have a brokenness in your marriage, you need to seek reconciliation. When you have brokenness in a business relationship, you need to seek reconciliation. Otherwise, it's just separated and it's drawn apart right. and it's never going to be at peace, right? And so we need this this right relationship, this right, this, this reunification, this reconciliation with God, our Heavenly Father, because to be absent of Him 
is not a good thing. That's the weeping and gnashing mm-hmm. of teeth. For I mean, uh, his hand is still in us, sustaining us now, and we suffer. But when he fully removes it and, and removes us, rather, from his presence on that last day, uh, those who don't have this reconciliation, trust in Christ that he has won this for him. That's that's the pain and suffering of hell for all eternity. Well, and Roma's Roma's yeah. teaching here that on that day you're supposed to take your heart, hold mm-hmm. it up to God, and say, "Look how much I did! Didn't I yeah. love enough? Haven't mm-hmm. I formed this habit of love?" And that Jesus died so that you could form that habit of love, right? That even after everything Jesus did on the cross—the darkness, the tearing of the temple curtain, the resurrection from the dead, descending to hell, ascension to heaven—all of it was only so that you could now have the chance to love enough. To hold it up to God on the last day and say, "Are we reconciled now?" And what a aside from that, what we believe about original sin, what a dark prospect that is. Um, what a petty thing that makes Jesus ultimately. It, yeah. it, it really steals His glory. It buries Him, right, well, as yeah. I said. It, it makes Him completely incidental and actually not even a part of reconciling you to God, because it says that it's still up to, to you. you. Yeah, and and. And, and one of the other ways that this often gets twisted, I, I, I once heard um, a friend talking about they, they were going through a really tough time. They needed uh, some some major heart surgery and things and I uh, transplant and it was just a mess and everything. And out of frustration, the friend said, come on, God, do your job. Right? And I was like, oh, he's done his job. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, but but they they were they were under an understanding. It became very clear in the conversation. They were in an understanding that he becomes sort of a model for us of how to love one another, mm-hmm. right? And and that really all that matters is my ability to do that. And so Jesus needs to make me able to do that. As if the ultimate model of love is crucifying your son. Like, <laughs> how is that demonstrating love if it's just to show how much he loved? If it doesn't, the reason it shows how much he loved is because it achieves something. Right. right, it takes his enemies and makes them his friends again. It again reconciles, brings together that which was torn apart. I was going to say it's it's. There are times in my life where I wish I were an artist who could really draw well or paint well or animate or something. This this last sentence, we cannot set up our own love and our own works against God's wrath, is mm-hmm. one of those where I have this mental image of here I am. I'm I've, I'm standing before some sort of gates and here's my love and my works and I'm laying them out on the ground as offerings and here's God and he's, he opens his mouth and I, I I envision his wrath as just this massive flame that just burns up everything, including me. There's a movie about that. I'm just gone. Called the desolation of smog. I think. (laughs) See, I wasn't, I didn't want to go with the dragon because dragon has other connotations. connotations. So I couldn't do that, but still, but then the, the equal picture to that, there's that, okay, here's me offering or, Here's Christ standing in my stead or maybe standing in front of me. The exact same thing happens, and yet Christ is still standing. Right. And he's still there. And the picture you painted of, you know, hold or hold Pastor Fisk holding your heart up, it's just you standing there. You're going to get burned. But if it's Christ standing there or if you're, he's standing in your place, you're behind him, whatever that mental image that's theologically correct looks like, uh, it's like I wish I could just paint that. Well, that's him on the cross <laughs> yeah. standing in your place. Yes. And I mean, to go further with the image, so where you're having it now is on the last day, you got this water of baptism, this armor of light of who Jesus is, helmet mm-hmm. of salvation, shield of faith that's been placed on you, and the wrath's just going to pass right over. And yeah, there, Paul will even talk about how some of your work's going to be burned away, but you will be saved. Yeah. The, the, the picture, I mean, when you're talking about an artist drawing, what you made me immediately think of is... Not holding up my heart, but the the opposite, the uh, uh, the tax collector in the temple, 
at the back, yeah. on the ground, beating his chest, saying, I don't even deserve to be in here, right? And and yet, what does God say? He goes home. It's about what we're talking about. Justified. justified right? Justified, declared yeah. innocent. Yeah. Yeah, that's why we can't take the curie out. Lord, have mercy on me. Yeah. Right? We, yeah. We, that has to be our cry constantly. And if my cry is, oh, I'm, I'm giving you my best, it's not going to be good enough. Sometimes when you meet that false understanding, and thankfully I don't have this problem at either of the congregations I serve, but, you know, when you have that false understanding, sometimes I'm tempted to, uh, you know, uh, to, to, to give an image for them that when the offering pr- plates are brought forward, it's like, no. That's not enough. Send them back until there's more. You know, that, that <laughs> would be, that would on, be a small <laughs> bit of, you know, it's like, oh, you've given all that you had, or but I demand more, right? right. You know, hmm. and that's, you know, I would never do that. <laughs> Still come to my churches. I, I promise to give you the gospel. I'm, I'm just saying it's an image that might help us understand that if we think we have anything to offer on that day, I mean, St. Paul himself says it's like filthy rags. I mean, right. even yeah. your best works. A, a pet nothing. peeve of mine is when we take the, and you can do this. It's just a pet peeve of mine. It's Pastor Fisk's pet peeve is when we take the offering place and put them on the altar. As if somehow that's the place that the offering goes, as opposed to that's the place that the sacrifice comes from, right? Mm, right. And it's fine. Have a place up there. Put the put the put the money up there. But that's not what the altar is for. The altar is there not to receive our gifts, but to give gifts back to us. And and sometimes we don't that. have anywhere else to put them. I just think I was like, I, mean, I don't think I'm, there's I'm just another thinking table of my congregation. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm self-justifying. <laughs> I, once, I once caused a stir just because I started walking into the back narthex with the money. <laughs> just yeah, that, that has other uh, dangers yeah. brought with it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we ended up using the credence table instead yeah. for the offering at that point. So oh, I had another thought there and I've, I've lost it, but, uh, uh, cause you were, 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 I have a thought about the liturgy yeah, go for a little it. bit. Oh. So, talking about the Kyrie. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, they're, you know, saying how essential it is and yes, it is. I, I can think of there are several other things like right now in the season of Lent, there's a particular word that we don't say parts of the liturgy that get taken out because of that. I mean, I'm not a lit- liturgical expert, but I'm pretty sure the Kyrie never leaves that's always there in every single liturgical setting, no matter what you're doing, what the service is, the curie is there. I, is I, that, I, that right? Yeah. yeah. I've noticed the yeah. only place that it does leave is in congregations that turn towards, and, and I'm not blaming even our brother and sister Lutherans here, although if the law accuses, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, in, in broader American evangelicalism, uh, where we where we form our services around this fact that we have something to offer, hmm. what's the things that go with it? The curie, all yeah. right? The the confession of our sin, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you. But that, that, that even proves yeah. the point, though. Historically, there is no historic liturgy where it's gone. Yeah, and the, right. yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And this, uh, ironically, this was the actual point that I forgot that I was, I was like, I oh, had hey, to, we're on the same said, wavelength. Isn't isn't it, and, and to your point, Sean, as well, isn't it interesting that in the great history of the church, there is a season where they decide to have no praise. That's why they take out the word hallelujah. We still praise a little bit, but they, they literally say we have a season without praise, but you never have a season without repentance and the and the imprecation of, for mercy, right? Whereas the American zeitgeist, the, the wind of America is, let's have nothing but praise. We're going to have nothing but praise all the time in these churches and these other churches. Well, you can you can do your other thing if you want to. The ancient church said, "We need to actually slow down on our praise a little bit here and ask for mercy." Not that we're not against praise; it comes back on Easter, and this is what makes it so exciting. Yeah? And the irony of that, you know, the current zeitgeist of let's just all have praise. One of the common accusations you'll see right now, if you're on social media, which I spend a little bit of time there, um, <laughs> you know, every day, 
evangelicals or reformed who don't like Lent, who don't think we should practice Lent, their common accusation is, well, we shouldn't just have one time a year when we're thinking about repentance. Oh, it should be all the time. That's actually one of their accusations. And it's like, no, you don't understand. Like, it's always repentance, all the time. This is just an extra special emphasis on it for us to really... We're always talking about repentance and forgiveness and... The that, irony really of somebody funny. who's trying oh, to focus oh, the on way. praise all the time accuses us of not focus of, you know, if you have Lent and you right. focus on repentance, you're not going to focus on it the rest of the time. Right. Really? What? Uh. Because once again, what what was the first of the 95 theses? This this thing that kind of started it all, right? You yeah. know, was the, the spark. You know, the whole life of the believer should be one of repentance. And that's what they'll Amen, throw at us Lutheran. when they discover yeah. that it's Lutherans who are doing this papist Roman Catholic practice. And but, aren't they the ones who said that? And oh, look, now they're getting it wrong. It's like, we wait, don't add no. more repentance to the service. No. <laughs> we take away the praise song that is Alleluia. I just said yeah. it. I know it's Lent. You're allowed to say it. You just don't sing it in church usually. We take What's away funny that is word. We still the use Lord. the English translation of it, though. Yeah, have you ever I know. noticed that? We'll still say yeah. praise the Lord, <laughs> but we just take away that. We just take away that Alleluia, not so that we would have a season where we finally focus on repentance, but so that we would right. make it unmistakably clear: don't miss this point. This is why yeah. Jesus came. He's on Earth right now in the in the calendar year as we follow His life for one focus to turn his face toward Jerusalem and die for your sins. And that's what you need not to show him how worthy you are. Now that you've been saved, he knows both how worthless you are and how much he's going to make you worthy. What you need is to know that as well, to have his word declare to you what you really are over and against what you, well, what you are in yourself. Well, right. And, and to, to make a little point here, we're going off on a little rabbit trail, but I hope you'll endure me here. So our, our confessions also say, um, you know, uh, the use of the ceremonies, the reason that we retain the liturgy is for teaching. And that's what the seasons really do. And, and mm. that's what you were just saying, yeah. too, is, is that, yeah, when, whenever we see white as the altar pyramids and so forth, right, they have no merit of it in themselves. It could be, you know, pink if we want. No, I don't want pink, but I'm it's just rose. saying. Well, there's two but, Sundays a year right, for that. But, but right. It's it, rose, it, not it, pink. it indicates to us, you know, a different shift of focus, right? Right. right. And, and uh, there we focus on the glory of God. Does that mean that we don't do it all the rest of the year? No, it's just a special focus so that we, we make sure that we're hitting that within our our uh, focusing on everything, right? And teaching everything. So also that's when we see the purple. And that's why even... Advent historically had the right. purple it's as the color as well. Yeah. It's a penitential season. But run with that. I mean, I, I love this though. The purple isn't first a penitential color, like in the ancient world, it's the color of royalty. Mm-hmm. And yet we're recognizing that the royalty that we have as Christians is not glory. Right, but penitence, yeah. Right. Uh, the, the the glory of our King in His royalty was a crown not of gold, but of thorns. And everything about Lent as a season is there to to really put us back in our place where we would remember this. And as you said earlier, say, Lord, have mercy. Like the uh, the tax collector, beat our breasts. Right, uh, recognize our our dire need, which. As we said again, going all the way back to the start of this conversation, the American Christian world is just kind of missing that need these days. It's not that there aren't Christians out there oh, right. that, that yeah. know it, but like you can't, you walk into a Christian bookstore and you don't see a bunch of books about how Jesus is your savior. No, it's because their starting point isn't the article of justification where it is for us as Lutherans. Their, their starting point is the sovereignty of God, his glory, and everything has to give him glory. Well, it actually makes him less glorified if I have to make sure yeah, that his glory I'm the one who's got to do it yeah. right and uh and and so we just simply say God is sovereign um 
and in his sovereignty, he has chose to work through these means. And it it gives me such great comfort that, yes, of course. I mean, every time in Scripture, God's people are saved, right? Not of their own word. I mean, God is at work splitting the Red Sea, and they walk across on dry land, and then and then he crushes the armies by bringing the water back in. That was all because of their habit of love. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and oh, by the way, Peter says it's it's that that corresponds to baptism, yeah. right? This yeah. moment of justification for us where we are baptized into Christ's death and resurrection. I mean, it all starts coming together, right? But but what naturally happens on the other side of the Red Sea? We're going to praise God. I mean, it's going to happen. I mean, it, it's... I was going to say they commit idolatry. They uh, well, they, they do that too. It's a constant cycle. Isn't there a golden calf in there somewhere? Yeah, yeah but the well, song, the song of Miriam right. and Moses on the other side of the Red Sea, great yeah. Easter song, right? Uh, the the yeah. horse and his rider has been thrown into the sea. Yeah. Uh, Israel's host triumphant go through the way that drows the foe. Can't say the next word technically, right? Uh, it's <laughs> but praise bursts forth as a result of being saved from something. Right. Yeah, and and even when, when they recognize out in the wilderness again, right? They're, 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 they're chastised with the snakes biting them. Right. And then the bronze snake is lifted up on the staff and they look to it and they're saved. And once they get through that mess and they realize ah, it was my stupidity and my, my running away from God, right. Not wanting peace with him, um, that I needed to be saved from this issue. And he provided that way. And they, they even praise him when once again, I mean, this is the God problem that they have. He had to chastise them. Uh, he had to send this uh, punishment upon them, this consequence, so that they might turn to him, put their trust solely in his mercy hmm. to save them. And then, yes, they praise him. And, and it's the same life we live today. Yep. I got nothing to add to that. That's just beautiful. <laughs> That's just the end of we it. We have a God problem, but we have a God solution. Hashtag Jonathan Fisk said that. Sean Smith. <laughs> You're listening to Cross Defense. I said it again. <laughs> Long day. You're listening to Concord Matters on Worldwide KFUO. We are the messenger of good news. You can check us out at kfuo.org. All of our shows are podcastable there in case you want to hear them again. Otherwise, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, pa- uh, Mr. Peter Slayton, Social Media Manager of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and Pastor Sean Smith, uh, St. Paul Winehill, and Emmanuel West Point, Illinois. Both wonderful congregations where... Christ is proclaimed, the sacrament is given. You, Christian, out there seeking unity in these things, make sure you get to that this week yourself. Lenten services midweek, somewhere near you, hear Christ preached on your behalf.